Kusuzong Bola. You are listening to Bhutan Dialogues, a forum to discuss ideas and issues in development. Bhutan Dialogues is a joint initiative of the Loden Foundation and the UN in Bhutan, held every second Thursday of the month. I am Gerald Daly, the resident coordinator of UN Bhutan, the host for today's conversation. And the guest for this session is Limpo Dr. Tandy Dorji, Foreign Minister. We will discuss on growing Bhutan's international footprint. This dialogue has three parts. Mrs. Sering Chuki of the United Nations in Bhutan will introduce the sessions followed by my conversation with the guest. The session ends with the Q&A with the live audience. Kadanchela. Welcome to the 35th session of Bhutan Dialogue. Till now, whatever we did mattered little outside. But from today onwards, our success and failures will be reflected before the whole world. We have now joined hands with other advanced countries of the world. It was only a decade ago that we launched development programs to raise the level of our economy and provide welfare facilities for the people. We have not made, not made much headway during this period, and we have nothing much to show to the outside world. His Majesty the Third King. His Majesty the Third Dogelpo's vision for multilateralism has strengthened Bhutan's prominence in the international arena. Today, Bhutan plays an active role as a responsible member of the international community. Bhutan's foreign policy and international relations are successful because our monarchs build genuine trust and friendship based on mutual respect with all countries. Bhutan's engagement with the rest of the world has always been the minimalist approach. Every single step that Bhutan took well thought out, timely, and calculated. Drawing inspiration from His Majesty's 112th National Day Address, the Royal Government has launched the process of formulating the 21st century economic roadmap. Economic diplomacy, enhancing trade and commerce, creating a conducive environment for foreign direct investments, and exploring external financing windows to meet domestic priorities, this will become an important foreign policy objective. Our topic today is growing Bhutan's international footprint. Our speaker is His Excellency, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Limpo Dr. Tandi Dochi. Limpo is a pediatrician by profession and is the founding, founding member of Druknamrup Sopa. He has co-authored two books, History of Medicine in Bhutan, and Druklul decides in the minds of Bhutan's first voters. Our host for today is Mr. Gerald Daly, the resident coordinator of UN Bhutan. If I may suggest everyone present here today, online, to keep their questions short and to the point. Please leave your questions in the chat box. We will be compiling the questions and Ugen will read it out and the speaker will answer your questions at the end of the session as usual. Please allow me to end with a quote from the UN Secretary General. Prevention must consistently be seen as a value in itself. It is an essential means of reducing hum human suffering and enabling people to reach their full potential. International cooperation for prevention and particularly translating early warning into early action depends on trust between member states and in their relations with the United Nations. Thank you, and Tashibala. Bola, Limpo, welcome to your UN house. Thank you. Um, we're going to start immediately, and the first question is, who are your heroes from childhood? Thank you, Jerry. First of all, let me take this opportunity to say I'm very happy to be here, to be part of the Bhutan Dialogues. I have participated as an audience many times, and I always thought that this was a very good platform uh, to share our own experiences. Uh, coming to your question, I know it may sound a little cliché, uh, but really I think the two people that stand out in my earlier years, uh, I think my father was my biggest inspiration. I'm not sure if many people know, but he was a health worker. 
starting from the 60s, he was a compounder. He worked uh, in the health services many times. I remember him going across the country, vaccinating people against smallpox. Uh, so I think really, uh, he really inspired me to take the profession that I am in. And as I grew, I think uh, the second uh, person that really stands out as a hero is His Majesty the Fourth Drugalpo. Uh, we have grown up uh, watching His Majesty lead from the front by exemplary uh, his own. Uh, the clear that figure that stands out is His Majesty playing basketball in his core. And uh, even today, when you realize that His Majesty was always wearing this core. And at that time, as a young teenager, you are rebelling against wearing the coat and you're wearing jeans and following Michael Jackson. And, but you realize as you grow that uh, really, I think the message was very clear that as Bhutanese, I think it's very important of our identity and identity in terms of our language, our dress, our culture. I think as a small country, this is uh, very, very important. And now as we as I am in where I am today, I realize more and more how profound and how far-sighted His Majesty has been. And uh, leading right up to democracy and handing over to our present King, I think those all stand out as uh, great inspirations for me to learn from. What childhood experiences made you who you are today? At a very young age, at four years, I was sent to Darjeeling to study. And I grew up uh, in a Jesuit school. And so um, I was very much influenced by the Jesuits and uh, their, uh, their manner in which the uh, education was provided. And right up to my 10th standard, I think uh, the work done by my teachers, especially from the Jesuit point of view, I'll not talk about the religious point of, from the religious angle, but the teaching that is, uh, I think that is across all other uh, religions, and that is about to serve others, to think of others before yourself and uh, to take care of the poor. And these were strong teachings that I learned. Uh, and just as I was finishing my high school, uh, I was very sick. I, I'm told that I nearly died. I was unconscious for over a month and I was in a hospital called the, called the Planters Hospital in Darjeeling. Dr. Pemba, I know many people know, was the physician then. And that really changed my, my way of thinking about mm. what I want to do in my life. Mm. And so those two things of serving others mm. and then leading on to the uh, health arena, mm. followed by my early inspiration from my father, mm. really uh, drove me to take up science and ultimately to become a doctor. And then subsequently, of course, I worked for about 14 years. Mm. So those early days of uh, studying in a Jesuit school, followed by my near-death experience, so to speak, mm. I think really inspired me to be what I am today. Mm. Of course, um, you are one of the founders of the ruling political party. Uh, you've had to come across, and I'm sure you've come across a number of challenges during this period of time. When you come across challenges, how do you get through them? And what advice would you have for the people who are listening on how they can learn from how you've dealt with your challenges? Thank you, Jerry. I think this is, uh, for us, this has always been a very, very core belief in our, in our party. As a new party, when we began in 2012, and just within a year, we had to contest the first elections, which we lost. Uh, I think for me, when it comes to challenges, I always believe that uh, these challenges are there for you to confront and that there is no challenge that you can overcome. There are no obstacles that you can overcome. The most important thing is to find a solution, not to give up and to persevere in your beliefs and what you intend to do. Uh, again, it may sound cliche, but really failures are really the stepping stones to success. Um, I've lost two elections in the past. We've had several setbacks in the party, uh, having no major funding uh, back up as uh, as the other two parties mm. earlier had mm. and so it was very difficult to get funds to keep our flock together to make people who enter the party believe in what the party intended to do mm. and to continue to persevere so really I think when it comes to challenges I think it's important to get headstrong mm. 
meet the challenge up front, mm. find the perfect solution, don't give up and continue to persevere. I think this is something that I can share with the young people and the audience uh, who are watching today. Of course, uh, narrowing the gap is a very compassionate mandate. Where did it come from? Uh, this is really, again, uh, comes back to the roots of our party. Uh, I can proudly say that the members in our party all come from very humble backgrounds. If you look at our cabinet today, I think there are only two cabinet members whose parents are educated. All the other members and the large majority of our candidates all have come from the villages. And we've actually seen uh, what is uh, the reality at the ground level. Bhutan has definitely progressed and I think as seen in many countries, as a country progresses, the large majority of the population also progresses. However, there is that small number which, leave, which gets left behind. And if we do not do something, then that gap only increases. And that you can see examples from many countries around the world, even in the most advanced countries, the gap between the really rich and uh, those who are on the lower rungs, it's immense. Uh, and also this is an inspiration from His Majesty the King and the, our welfare, the Kidu system, where no one really is left behind. But with the ushering in of democracy, there was a real danger that people could be left behind. If a government of the day, if their policies and programs are not aligned to helping the, the really the most vulnerable. Mm. And therefore, after the two, two governments that had come in, we realized more and more that the real need, besides many other needs, mm. is really, and with the UN, is mm. to really not leave anyone behind. Mm. And that there is that small gap, mm. uh, the small number of population which is really being left behind and the gap could increase. Mm. And when we say narrowing the gap, I don't really mean it just in terms of poverty and economy. Mm. I think we talk about gaps between regions, mm. between districts, uh, between gender, mm. uh, uh, male and female. Mm. There are so many other gaps that we need to really narrow mm. and just not really only from the from the economic sense of the poor and the rich. And so um, this was really the turning point for our party. And if you look, the, look at all the uh, promises that we have made in our manifesto, all the pledges that we have made are very closely aligned to narrowing the gap. You have a particular commitment to CSOs, especially CSOs that uh, work in the area of LGBTIQ rights. Yes. Um, over recent years, CSOs are asking the question about financial sustainability. It's a question that many colleagues bring to my attention. If you were the executive director of a CSO in Bhutan, what would you be doing to ensure financial sustainability? That is a very, very important question. And, you know, I've been a very strong advocate. I've been part of some CSOs. I've helped establish some CSOs and I've worked very closely with the civil society sector. And I know that financial sustainability is a real challenge. And therefore, if I, if I was a director of one of the CSOs, the first and foremost is that there has to be dual responsibility to the CSO itself and then to the donors that you are seeking to get funds from. The first and foremost is that the civil society, whoever that civil society is, must have very clear objectives and mandates. And must understand the reason for its existence, that really CSOs is not for profit. So a civil society agency cannot be seen as a place for, for giving jobs to people or to be taking tours and uh, really not focusing on your mandate, but really to keep uh, providing some income to the members of your civil society. I think that is fundamental, uh, the most fundamental thing that I've seen. If you are committed to the work that you are and that the funds that you are seeking are towards the work that you do, then I think it's very important that you have a very clear funding plan and how you intend to get those funds from. Of course, the number of funds available in Bhutan are very limited. One major source is, of course, the government. And it's very important to work very closely with the government. So having had that experience of working with the CSOs in the past, now that I'm in the government, 
we have made a plan that when 2023 comes and Bhutan graduates to a middle-income country, the number of partners that are actually going to provide funds for the government is going to reduce. It's already reduced to a huge extent. But the civil society organization can take the responsibility of doing the work that traditionally would have been done by the government. There are many areas now where civil society is working. Take poverty, alleviation, gender, youth, environment. There are so many civil society organizations. And it's not necessary for the government to take up all those work. We need to outsource some of those work that can be better performed by the civil society. And we would like to provide the funds, whatever the government has, which would have been spent by the government, to give it to the civil society. Because, I mean, if they have the passion for what they are doing, I think the civil society are far better at doing so many things uh, more than the government. And therefore, this is one of the things that I would like to do. The second, of course, is to build the capacity of the civil society uh, agencies and to help them to write good proposals uh, to good funding agencies So, and also to ensure that they're implemented well and that they're reporting well and that monitoring and everything is part of, of their work. So really, if I was, um, was one of the directors, I mean, these are the things that I, I would really need to do. Some CSO colleagues believe that the DHI companies could do more when it comes to corporate social responsibility. Um, what advice would you give on this issue? I absolutely agree, uh, Gerald. I think many of the DHI companies, especially the big companies, they also do some social, uh, corporate social responsibility. However, we really need to move away from the traditional way of doing corporate social responsibility. And so if the advice I had to give was that uh, I think we should now focus on actionable, uh, we should provide funds for things that can make a difference and change uh, people's lives or help attain uh, goals that are set out at the national level. Traditionally, the corporate social responsibility was mainly in terms of contributions to build a lagam, to give to a function, tichu, um, such things, you know, religious activities, lot of prayer readings, these are all very important. I, I, I totally understand that. However, I think these companies can work very closely with our civil societies and make a difference in the communities that these civil societies work with. And some of the work that these civil society organizations do actually are related to the work that many of these companies are doing. And therefore, I think most of our DHI companies, um, in fact, our Prime Minister has been talking with some of them to say these are potential areas in which if you have some additional funds that you could provide, I mean, these are additional funds that you could provide to these civil society uh, organizations who would do the work that otherwise would have been done by the government mm. and that these national goals would be attained. Mm. So really, these, the national goals that we set out are not only the responsibility of the government alone, mm. but of these DHI companies, of the private sector and all of all these CSOs. Mm. The only thing we need to do is we need to give opportunity and to give uh, resources mm. to these civil societies. Um, of course, this year marks the 50th uh, year of partnership between the United Nations and the Royal Government of Bhutan and the people of Bhutan. Um, how would you describe this milestone? Jerry, I think this is a very significant milestone. 50 years, uh, nearly half a century of partnership and progress. Um, when we joined the UN, it was uh, with a lot of difficulties, as we know. Uh, His Majesty the Third King and of course, Prince Namgyamachu was his envoy to the UN. I, I think the, com the communications from that time is very, very clear. I think it reinforced our sovereignty. Uh, over the years of our partnership with the UN, I think in the early days, it was very critical to come out from our centuries of isolation and to join the global community and to embark on this process of development. And. Uh, with very few partners at that time, I think the United Nations played a very, very important role in the progress uh, and setting out the development agenda mm. and provided a lot of resources, both in terms of financial as well as technical. Um, 
And I think this partnership continues to this day, although the traditional way of working has changed largely, of course, given that now Bhutan has progressed substantially and that mm. we are about to graduate. But I think uh, what, uh, what Tilly said that time also is about multilateralism, the importance. Mm. COVID has also taught us mm. the importance of interdependence, mm. that we all depend on each other, that nations must work together. Mm. And I think this is uh, uh, being for Bhutan to be a part of the UN. I think this is very important. I think globally, I think every country now sees it very clearly mm. that uh, multilateralism has a big role to play mm. spe now, especially after this COVID. Mm. And therefore, marking these 50 years of our partnership with the UN, I think is both very, very significant and also it reflects on the progress we have made thus far. It's important that the UN here in Bhutan does not rest on its laurels. Uh, if you were guiding me on the three most important APAs mm. that the UN should follow between now and the 2030, what would those three APAs be? For the benefit of the audience, the APA really, I think you are mentioning, is the annual performance agreements that um, the government has with its ministries and with the departments. Uh, well, as you know, Jerry, I think 2030 is also the date for the SDGs and we have these 17 goals. But really, if I was to um, advise or to comment on, on the UN, I would actually say, I would, I, you said three, but I, let me say four. These are very, um, very, very close to my heart. And these are the four areas. If you look at our manifesto, also revolves around these four areas. The most important thing, I, of course, and which we continue to do, is to align the work of the UN with that of our national goals. So your SDGs and our um, national key result areas are very closely aligned. But the four areas, I think that is critical and could be part of the annual performance agreements till 2030 is really, I talk of, of them as the four E's. And these are all very, very critical. The first is of course the education and which is Majesty has just recently announced on the need to reform. This is also in line with the SDGs. I think the way we reform our education and make it relevant for the present context, mm. we need to move away from the old traditional rote learning and move into now the new system of education. So that is very, very important. The second one, of course, is employment. And uh, again, very, very closely related. I think we need to work together, the UN and the government needs to work together and see on how we can generate more employment and keep our young people engaged. I think for us, this will be the biggest challenge for Bhutan in the next uh, few years. The third, of course, is the environment, which Bhutan has been successful so far. However, given that our economy is largely dependent on climate change, on the environment, it's very important that we continue to invest and to continue to build on what we have had in the past and not to take for granted the environment that we have. With modern development, I think there is more and more encroachment on the environment. And I think we need to change the way we are dealing with in terms of energy use, etc. Uh, last, of course, the most important is the economy. And again, the 21st century economic plan roadmap that we have with you, Jerry, along with the UN partners, also have uh, developed is to align it again to 2030 to see what we can achieve. And so any annual performance agreement that the UN needs to make, I think these four, if we can address these four areas, and I, I'm very confident I, and I believe that the 21st century economic roadmap will keep these four areas uh, at the forefront. And if we can address these four in a very sustainable and progressive manner, I think by 2030 we will have achieved the vision that is set out by His Majesty the King and as well as the as the roadmap that we hope to finalize in the next few months. Uh, thank you. Um, Bhutan enjoys a positive global image and standing. How will Bhutan expand its footprint at a regional and global level over the next two years? As a small country, um, I think Bhutan, we've always maintained uh, a very low profile. We haven't really played, played it out in the global stage. 
um, and very difficult as a small nation to really make a footprint uh, at regional and at global level. But nevertheless, I think there is great opportunity for us, uh, led by the Majesties, the Kings. Um, there is, we have, Bhutan has benefited immensely from the global community, including the UN. We have received a lot of assistance and grant and aid and brought us where we are today. I think now it's an opportunity for us to give back. And there are many areas I see that Bhutan can give back. I think uh, first and foremost, again, which everybody knows is on the concept of gross national happiness, that we need to go beyond the concept of GDP. And in the words of His Majesty, to really develop with values. That while the country develops, we should not lose sight or lose our values. And our values means our culture, our environment. Our development should not be at the cost of those values that are dear to us. And this concept, I think, needs to, needs to be spread more. I think many nations are picking up from where and defining it in their own ways, uh, in terms not necessarily as gross national happiness, but at least in terms of well-being over income generation. And so I think this is one area that we can do. Two is, of course, which Bhutan has always played a part, is on in the environment. I think currently we are the chair of the LDC countries and we are doing a lot of work in that. And really taking the example of Bhutan and how we have maintained to keep our environment our constitutional mandate of having 60% forest cover, etc., uh, very stringent uh, rules and regulations on protecting of our forests. So I think these are some of the examples that we can share with the with global community. And uh, the other area that is again very close to my heart is, I, I wouldn't say it from the Buddhism point of view, not from the religion point of view, but really about compassion and uh, social welfare and to take care of those who are most vulnerable, the most needy. We are fortunate in Bhutan that we have the Kidu system under His Majesty the King takes care of all those who otherwise would be totally left by society. So that at least there's nobody on the streets. There's nobody who goes hungry. There's nobody who doesn't have a roof over their head because although it's out of the purview of the government, at least the Kidu system under His Majesty the King takes care. But really, I think this all stems from compassion. And you have seen during this lockdown, where in the world where you, would you see um, that His Majesty the King has commanded to even take care of the dogs on the streets because during the lockdown, the dogs were not getting fed. And so I think um, that to care for each other and to care for those who are most vulnerable, the most needy, I think these are some of the things that Bhutan can expand and take as, and keep as our footprints. I'd like to ask a question that regards the, for young diplomats. In line earlier on today, you spoke about the cash or the education cash up. There also was a cash on civil service reform. Yes, yes. Um, in line with that civil service reform, are there any key changes that you would like to see in the foreign ministry bureaucracy? I would definitely like to see that, and I, I have started the work and it needs some time, but I hope that at the end of my tenure I would have made a significant difference in the way our foreign officers work. And that is really to be more responsible for the work that you do. Not in terms of only the political part, on which we have been traditionally, uh, the foreign ministry's work is largely political. But really, I think now we need to work and get our foreign service officers to think beyond just the political part and look at how we can enhance uh, economic diplomacy, how we can enhance trade, that we have the responsibility of ensuring and supporting the work of all the other line agencies. And we need to see, as I said, uh, as you might have known, I've always talked about Bhutan to move away from aid to trade. This is one area that I would like to see a big change and to see how our foreign service officers, their capacity can be built and they can take more responsibility for such work. But the real change that I would like to see within the foreign service officers is in the area of specialization. I think uh, our foreign service officers need to be specialized. Some need to specialize in climate change and go for negotiations at the international level. We need to specialize in trade. 
to be a member of the international trade, maybe as someday of the WTO. We need we need specialists in the foreign ministry on international negotiations on treaties. We need language specialists. We need regional specialists. And um, so they, right now, uh, the traditional way in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is we work as multilateral department and bilateral department and uh, regional organizations. So really, I think now we need to, I would like to see some form of specializations and have specialized units created within the ministry that looks at trade, that looks at climate change, that looks at treaties, international laws, and then uh, have language specialists and regional specialists and maybe even country specialists. And I think when we say country specialists, we need to know everything about them so that we can trade and, and deal with those in terms of the language and culture, etc. So these two, uh, Jerry, I think uh, I see that really needs to change and reform. And we have started the, started the work and I hope that this will be part of the reform as in line with the Kashu that we have received. So my understanding is uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs probably gets the cream of the crop in terms of new graduates. Yes. So um, what career advice would you give to our listeners today that might help them get to the top of the top? Because you don't have that many slots in true, the ministry. True. I think uh, it's quite apparent that over the last few years, only the top of the top, usually the toppers from the Royal Civil Service Commission, their first choice and option has always been to join the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And so if I were to advise many of the young people, of course, I don't come from the Foreign Service cadre. I happen to be the minister because from the political side. But nevertheless, having seen the work of the Foreign Ministry and seeing the type of work we do and the work we foresee ourselves doing, I can only say that... Uh, the most important thing is to read widely, that you need to have a good knowledge of, of everything and not just the subjects that you study. You may be a science student, a graduate student. We have officers from every background. As I mentioned, we have officer who was a monk. We have officer who studied early childcare. We had officers who studied environment. But it was not their subject, not how good they were at their subject but it was of how good they were, what was their knowledge about all the things that happened. And really, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we deal with, as I mentioned, with all the sectors we need to support. It may be trade, maybe health, it may be education, but everything that we do, really, when it comes to engaging with the outside world, goes through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And therefore, I think it's very critical for many young people to start earlier to read, to read and to observe, and to grasp whatever you can learn, besides, of course, the subjects that you, that you normally would read. And uh, I think if you are really heading for a career in the foreign ministry, I think you should start very early because you really need to be one of the toppers. Uh, so you really have to work really hard. And uh, this is one of the key features I see in my officers. All of them are very, very hardworking. They are very, very uh, focused at what they do. and. Um, very inquisitive and they ask questions. Uh, you need to have more confidence, you should have good ability to speak. I think these are the really the core things that uh, people who come to the foreign ministry have. Any advice about languages? Uh, in the years to come, as I mentioned to you, I think this will be one of the critical skills that you have. And I will not be very surprised if there is a requirement to have at least to learn one of the UN languages uh, to start with. And, um, of course, uh, very, very important to know the language of our neighbors uh, that we deal with. We have India and China. Of course, we have Bangladesh in our region. And then, of course, uh, the language of the UN. I think these, these, are, these will be um, very, very important. And this will be one of the critical skills that young people should already begin to, to take an interest in and to start learning a language. It will definitely be an asset. We're going to start a little bit earlier. My proposal is we take a total of four questions, the best four, and we'll do it in two rounds. So two questions, and then we'll invite Limpo to respond, and then the second two questions. Uh, please, over to you, Ogun, from uh, Loden Foundation. What are some of the measures put in place to 
make up for the revenue lost through tourism post-COVID? Mm-hmm. How will tourism change here on? And then the other question is, Bhutan has come a long way in making a mark internationally. While Bhutan has a lot of good plans in finding opportunities to grow its international footprint, what are some areas in which the youth will benefit? Government has lost a lot of revenue from, from tourism. But however, we have made recent changes uh, in our plans and we are going to be investing, as you know, as many people already know, we have invested very much on agriculture with the flagship programs on both the water and uh, the organic agriculture flagship programs. And we hope that uh, this will be one sector that we need to enhance. And therefore, the contributions from the agriculture sector, we hope, will, will increase and contribute to the economy. Um, for tourism sector itself, uh, now that the vaccination is going to be rolled out from tomorrow, I'm confident that uh, after two weeks of the second dose, we will put in plans to open up the tourism sector. Uh, but the criteria for opening must be very, very stringent to ensure that the country is still uh, safe. And therefore, we've already talked with the Ministry of Health, with the Technical Advisory Group, and we have come out with certain criteria. And we hope that the tourism sector will begin from the second half of 2021. Globally, I think the tourism sector is not expected to grow. However, um, given that we are a niche uh, market, uh, we, as in line with our high value, low volume, we hope that by next year, the tourism sector can rebound <coughs> and contribute to the economy. Uh, again, as I said, uh, that from, the, from my earlier answer to Jerry, was on to move away from aid to trade and to create more opportunities, uh, not only for Bhutanese but for the young people at large. So we are really looking at, um, one is of course through scholarships, but really number two is the opportunity to study and to work programs that uh, we have been talking with. Third one, very important uh, program that we are currently working with and we hope that it will be done after we finalize our next strategic framework plan for the year 22 to 27 with the EU and that that is to see how Bhutanese can take more opportunities in Europe. Last year we did one with with uh, Canada, with Australia of course now we have a very good uh, MOU signed with them on opportunities for young people to study and work and this is the same thing that we are doing with Canada which we started last year and we hope that from this year we will do it with uh, with the European Union where young people will get opportunities to not only study, but also will have the opportunity to work. And here again, I think the difference between Australia and Canada and the EU is what we just spoke about, is the need to know the languages of those European countries. And therefore, I think if you know German or Spanish or French, I think will be an asset to you and you will be able to, uh, to derive the benefits from these partnerships that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is working on. There have been a number of cases where Bhutanese have fallen victim to digital economy uh, coming from increased cybercrime. Could you give us your perspective on cybersecurity? How secure is Bhutan? And then the other question is, what do you think is the best way to engage the youth in the post-COVID recovery process? Okay, the cybersecurity one is a very, uh, very interesting question. Um, as you know, when His Majesty talked about um, the Gelsung program and uh, one of the real focuses of the Gelsung program of the three one is cyber security of course food security and home security etc are, are part of those Gelsung program but cyber security I think is top uh, one of the top agendas and we hope that in future that our young people will will have the training and the capacity built to ensure that we have a more safer environment in terms of uh, the use of uh, in the information technology. And uh, currently, I think the most important thing that we need to do is to inform and to advocate widely, uh, which the police and the, Depa- the Department of Law is doing, and monitoring to see that uh, these, uh, these illegal sites and where these, uh, uh, most of these crimes are taking place are monitored and that they are they are prevented from, from carrying out activities here in Bhutan. Of course, we are still um, building the capacity of our software engineers uh, and to build the capacity of our cybersecurity, to build capacity to, uh, 
where people can monitor these things. And one of the important things that uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has done is to establish diplomatic relationship with Israel. And uh, as we know that Israel is one of the leading countries in the world when it comes to cybersecurity. And one of the areas in which we will be working very closely with them is in the area of cybersecurity. We've already uh, exchanged uh, letters between the two countries to work very closely on cybersecurity and to see how we can get technical assistance from them to build, uh, build the capacity here in Bhutan. So I think those are things that we will be focusing on in the next uh, one to two years. Again, uh, as I mentioned that time, uh, His Majesty's uh, concern is really on the large number of youth who were unemployed, secondly, who have returned from abroad having lost their jobs, and the third is those who have been laid off, and really a large number of youth. As we speak, there are about 38,000 young people who are beneficiaries of the Kidu system. And His Majesty is also very concerned about how we can help this youth to have a good livelihood and to keep them engaged. And so the government has taken a number of activities. One of them, of course, as I mentioned, is the Desung, through the Desu program, who are working on the water flagship. And a large number of young people are now working in these projects where the work they do will actually benefit the communities and societies. For example, they'll take out drinking water and irrigation water. So while they are working, they are paid a livelihood. But at the same time, the satisfaction and uh, the fulfillment you get that the work you do will benefit the community and contribute to the development of the country. So those, those are one areas. The other one is, of course, the Build Bhutan project, where we are encouraging our young people to take up work in the, in the uh, construction sector. Third, of course, we've also established the uh, CSI Bank and the Government Guarantee Scheme where we want to encourage young people to take up entrepreneurship and to take up businesses and to uh, go into agriculture. And we are there to support them. And so they are, these are some of, the, some of the programs that the government is working on. But really, I, I want to tell the young audience today, those, all the young people who are in the audience today, that I think that, uh, that they should stop thinking about now getting a job. I think they should start thinking about how to create jobs, become entrepreneurs, uh, start uh, innovating and uh, get into business and you create the jobs and not be looking for jobs. I think this is something that I keep telling young people. Uh, I think that concept of now the jobs are very limited. We are already talking about a bloated bureaucracy, a large number of civil servants. We need to build the private sector, and I think it's the young people who, who, need to be pro, who need to be given opportunities. And so this is going to be the focus over the next two years. <clears throat> Thank you, Wogan. Um, Limpo, uh, you have so many responsibilities outside uh, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I wish to shift to that aspect of your incredible service to this country. Um, you are chairperson of the National Environment Commission. <coughs> In terms of Bhutan's environment, what's your advice on balancing <coughs> the need to preserve the environment with the need to create jobs and grow the economy? This is actually one of the reasons that I asked the Prime Minister to allow me to be the chairperson of the National Environment Commission. I think uh, the most important thing that we need to realize is that one is on sustainability. Uh, we need to sustain. When we talk about preserving the environment, we can preserve the environment as long as we can harness the resources that are renewable. I think this is very critical. I think, in my opinion, I think in the, in the past, we've been too restrictive on, the, on our environment. That you cannot cut trees, these are forests are protected. Of course, mining is totally something different. But when it comes to renewable resources, I think we must harness it. I think we must harness those resources that are renewable. So, I mean, uh, we could harness the forest products, wood, non-wood products, but keeping in mind sustainability. So, what you reap, you sow. So, you plant trees and uh, you, at the same time, you, you also harvest them. 
it would be foolish not to do that, but at the same time, not to destroy the forest entirely. And I think there are many examples from countries from Japan and Finland, which have used their resources very, very wisely. The second, of course, is uh, on the energy. We have large green energy, we have hydropower. And we need to invest more in hydropower and to utilize the energy from them. And therefore, instead of using fossil fuel, for example, we should now invest and also advocate for more use of renewable energy, getting electric cars, using induction heaters, for example, not only here in Tipu, but across the country. When we have green energy, we should use it and uh, restrict and reduce the use of fossil fuel. Uh, I think there is a need for us to invest more in solar and wind. Of course, these are very expensive uh, investments, but nevertheless, those are things that we can do at a small scale. Uh, biogas is another very good example. And so I'm a very firm believer that while we preserve the environment, we can preserve, it doesn't mean that we do not touch them. We can touch them and we need to separate those that is renewable and those that is non-renewable. Non-renewable, definitely I, am, I, I strongly believe that we sh should leave certain things for our future generations. But what is renewable, I think we, we must be intelligent and we must be wise enough to use them so that it creates jobs and provides opportunities for the business sector and at the end brings a benefit to the entire country. You also are chairperson of the NCWC, National Commission for Women and Children. What issue is closest to your heart when, you, when it comes to this responsibility? Again, Jerry, I think I took over the National Commission of Women and Children because um, as a pediatrician, I used to work very closely on the issues of child rights and on things that are related to children. I've worked very closely with NCWC in the past as a consultant with them. I've written um, several papers for them. And one of the areas now that I'm in government and the last few years of experience has shown is really on um, the vulnerabilities faced by women, especially the young girls. And uh, I think this is something that we all must work together. It cannot be the responsibility of me as the chairperson of NCWC or NCWC as a whole. Because everything revolves around these uh, young girls and young women uh, because of the vulnerabilities they face, large, um, because of the number of unemployment, large number of young people, especially girls. And so they are duped into taking up very risky professions here in the country, for example, working in the dryans, or uh, at risk of being uh, taken advantage of by older people. The third, of course, is being duped into going abroad, getting trafficked, which we have seen uh, in the last uh, one year and which under His Majesty's command, we had to rescue a large number, over 160 girls from, from abroad. And really the background to this is most of these young women and girls come from broken families and come from poorer, poorer sections of the society and largely from the rural, rural areas. And so for NCWC, we have put in place these committees uh, across all the geoks and the districts to ensure that these girls are identified and that we reach out to them and show them and protect them. Uh, for me, this is, this is one of the areas that is very closest to me. Uh, last Friday's council had a headline that gender-based violence increased by 53% last year. What do we need to do to solve this scourge? Yes, Jerry, and I'm afraid that uh, NCWC, which I'm, whom I met yesterday, are uh, currently carrying out a study, and I'm afraid that the numbers could be higher, the percentages could be higher. Uh, again, I think um, there's, a, there's, there's so many things we need to do. One of the reasons that why, in my opinion, why domestic violence has increased, gender violence has increased, is because of uh, the loss of uh, the traditional community support. We had large families, we had extended family members, and where the family members could support each other. But now that our, our communities are changing, and we are getting more nuclear families, that traditional support from family members is not there. Uh, second is again, um, during this pandemic, loss of jobs, loss of income, uh, have led people to become frustrated. And um, 
Thirdly, again, I think, of course, the lockdowns, people have blamed lockdowns, but I really don't think that it's about the lockdowns. But I think it's the, the increased prevalence of uh, alcohol in the alcohol in, the, in our society. And for me, I think these are the three areas in which we really need to work on. One, of course, is to advocate and educate, um, especially boys from a very young age. I truly believe that we can make a difference there. That if young boys are taught about consent, to use good language, please, that to accept when there's no, and um, that it's not correct to hit a person, I think these are things that we need to teach from a very young age. Um, second, of course, uh, we need to provide the protection that, that the laws are there, but we need to implement those laws more effectively and to advocate that the existence of these laws. Many people are still not aware of the Domestic Violence Prevention Act. Um, and of course, uh, one of the critical areas that uh, NCWC is working very closely with is to work with civil society organizations like Renew and to see how we can not only protect but also prevent such things from happening. Um, uh, recently, uh, victims of domestic violence have been, uh, we have trained them so that they can speak about their experiences. And uh, uh, these committees that we have formed at the GEWAG and the district level should learn when to see the signs and symptoms of, of such things. And uh, so these are, the, um, these are really the areas on which we need to work, uh, work more on. Uh, we are coming up with some policies and plans, uh, which is currently in the draft form. And we hope that uh, over the next one year, we will be able to work very closely with our partner Renew and uh, to really see that these, these things don't happen in our society. You're also chairperson of the Tourism Council of Bhutan. Yes. Uh, you spoke about it earlier on to today. Uh, um, what are some of the actions we need to take to transform the sector? Uh, again, my, my, my passion for this sector uh, led me to take on the role of the chair, chairperson. Um, we've already implemented a number of changes in the, in, in, the, in the way we deal with tourism. If you look uh, at the past governments, the chairperson of the Tourism Council was usually the Prime Minister. But uh, when we were writing our manifesto, we realized that, for example, in the last government, there was only two council meets in the entire five years. And so uh, uh, we realized that the Prime Minister cannot be the chairperson, and really doesn't have the time. And therefore, I decided to become the chairperson of the council. And we've had regular council meets at least two to three times a year. Um, We've created a tourism development uh, committee that will advise the council on what are the changes that need to be brought into this sector. And those committee members are, are from, the, from the sector itself, from the hotels, the tour operators, the guides, etc. Even the membership of the council, uh, we've changed. So we have, mem we, have the chair, we have the president of the hotels and association, we have the president of the tour operators, we have the uh, guides, uh, we have from civil society and we have uh, members from the local governments. And so we are focusing on the major changes that need to be overhauled. One is, of course, to stick with our high value, low volume, but to really make it convenient for visitors to come to Bhutan. We need to move away from the traditional, cultural and trek. Those are the two main reasons why tourists come to Bhutan. But we need to enhance this. Now we, we've been talking about something called experiential tourism, where we provide experiences to visitors coming to Bhutan, you know, ecotourism, agro-tourism, uh, it can be wellness, uh, can be for, uh, for mice. So those are areas that we are really focusing on now and shifting to more experiential tourism. Can be sports, can be as you know, the snowman uh, marathon that will be taking place later in the year, ultra, uh, ultra athletes to come to Bhutan. So these are one. And the second one is to make coming to Bhutan very easy. So we've tried to change the way in which uh, visitors coming to Bhutan can come at short notice, will be given visas for a fixed duration of time, that there are no you know, separate requirements of permits 
to go from one district to another to make it very easy and um, that they will have the good, good good experience. Of course, the third one that we have changed up with the with the establishment of the sustainable development fees for the regional tourism. So really, we've we've tried to keep tourists as tourists and not separate regional tourism and developing tourists as being separate, and that they should be treated the same. The quality of services that we provide should be the same. Uh, so these are some of the changes that we are making. And as we speak, uh, the Tourism Council is working on payment to be made more easier. So how can tourists make payments easier, not to pay in advance, and how to make their bookings uh, much more convenient? Um, you obviously have a packed schedule. How do you maintain your personal resilience and your high levels of energy? Uh, it helps to be a doctor, Jerry. So uh, I'm very careful with my health. Uh, on the food that I eat, I exercise very regularly. And uh, I really like my days to be very, very organized. So uh, even, even when I was not in office, I like my days to be very organized. And uh, I think one of the most important things for me, which I, which I would like to advise again the young people, is to always be inquisitive and to keep learning. I think there's, there's always something new to learn. It may not be in subjects or for anything. Uh, for example, I recently learned to play the ukulele. And um, I think that, that keeps you afresh and keeps you young. And that, that hunger for, for learning always. Uh, all these things, I think, uh, keep me going. Um, I'd like to know a little bit about your connection with Changanka Lakam. Could you explain your personal and your family connection with Changanka and how does this inspire your meditation practice? Thank you, Jerry. Um, I was born in Mutidhan, you know, so uh, I think my family is one of the oldest families uh, in, in, in Mutidhan area. When I was growing up, I, 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 see, I used to have, see only my house in that whole Mutidhan area. And I think my house is also the only one which is still in the traditionally built. And now you see all buildings everywhere except, except my house, which still maintains the traditional look. And uh, being born in Muditan, I think, uh, as the practice was in those days, was to take your child to be named at Changangalagang. And so uh, I was taken to Changangalagang and I was given my name Tandi from there because the local garden deity uh, is, of course, Tandi. And uh, so all the children who are named in Changangha either is Tandi or is Sona. And so uh, because of that uh, and our traditional Buddhist belief that once you are named and that you have a deity that you should visit that Hagan annually. So I've always visited Changangha Hagan on an annual basis and uh, as I grow up I visited more often now. And then you begin to realize that uh, read the history of Changangha Hagan and then you go into the background on, on how it was established. And then you look at architectural design, for example, its uniqueness from all of the temples. Um, and then uh, praying and meditating there. And then over the last few years, um, I started practicing Buddhism. I completed my Mindro practice. And uh, so whenever there is a change or whenever there is some important things to do, or when you're confronted with some some issues and you need to seek divine intervention, I go to Changalhagang and I get my blessings from both Apetandi and also Aptomsap, who is the guardian of Changalhagang. And um, I've realized that uh, with these kind of divine interventions, and largely for all Bhutanese, I think we have our own places of worship. And for me, that is really the link between me and uh, my family and Changalhagang. I never miss an opportunity to uh, go to Lagang. I attend all the festivals there and um, also to contribute in the upkeep of, of the Lagang itself. What are the two books that have influenced you the most in your life? Well, uh, as you see, um, the two books, there are many, many books that have influenced me. But I would say over the last um, few years as a medical doctor, I think this medicine and compassion book written by Chuki Nima Rimuche and uh, Dr. David Schlim, who has come to Bhutan many times. Uh, uh, one of the very fine doctors who's practiced in Nepal for many years. Um, 
I think this book has really uh, made a difference in my in my own life as as a as a doctor because when you're treating patients, you're not just treating the disease. You're you're treating somebody, and uh, you need to really understand that even a few words of kindness will bring a lot of relief to the pain uh, of the patient. And for me, this compassion component, which is deeply imbibed in our in our Buddhist practice, needs to be incorporated into modern medicine. And this is something I truly believe. Uh, there are many universities in the world now which have taken this concept and they've even filtered people who enter medical school and nursing school to see how compassionate they are. Because these are the people who will make good doctors and good nurses. And uh, this book really, uh, Rimuchi, outlines how you should in, how you should approach medicine with, with compassion. Of course, the Abdurrahman Yendo practice, which I said, is really the ultimate book. I think it's the most complete uh, Buddhist scripture. And I'm told that uh, when later Jay Chizur, uh, when he was passing, this was the last book or the last scripture that he read. And when you really look at the meaning of this Yendo practice, uh, it changes you in the way you think about life. And uh, so I would really recommend uh, those who are seriously contemplating on reading and practicing. I think this is uh, the shortest and the best version. The missions of George Bogley and Samuel Turner. Really, I think this book inspired me to join politics, if I may say so. Because uh, the missions of George Bogley in 1774 and Samuel Turner in 1783 really were the first um, first glimpses of how Bhutan were to the external world. And today when you read, read the experiences of these, you realize uh, where Bhutan was at that time and where we are today. So it's the progress that we have made. And like, like Buddhism, they say, where you are today is because where you were and where you are going to be is a reflection of where you are today. So really not only, um, not only inspired me to learn history and to look at our own history and on which I have written a book on, but really uh, to see that it is these political changes that have taken place are the reasons of how a country progresses. And that there are many things that we may do individually. As a doctor, I can treat a patient. But if I have to change the way in which medicine is practiced in Bhutan, then it can be done only through political change, um, by decision-making at policy level. And that can only be done through politics. It's very unlikely that a doctor in the civil service, in the hospital, can influence and change health policy. So really, uh, for me, these are the books and I continue to read uh, on our history and on the political changes that have taken place, not only to learn from them, but also to see where we are going from now. Lempo, we're to our last question now. Okay. Um, as many of the viewers will know, I'm standing in today for Dr. Karma Funso. He's not available due to a, um, um, a bereavement. Um, and he normally finishes with uh, a Buddhist quote. Uh, can I invite you to finish this session with your favorite Buddhist quote? There are three prayers that I always say. I, I, I would not like to say it all about, but the three prayers. One is, of course, uh, to always supplement and invoke your teacher, your root guru. The second that I always recite is our Shabdin to His Majesty the King and I can recite the whole whole recitation. And of course, the last one is my Indo practice, which I, I do it diligently every day from morning to night. And uh, uh, I mean, the, I do it from the beginning. There are four parts of the Indo practice and which I do every morning. So I spend this uh, time and I mean, the verses will be very, very long. But if I have to just um, say one of the verses from there, this is the first four verses of the Nyendro and it really means that once you have been born, you must not waste your life and you must do something meaningful. That um, 
what you see and experience must contribute to something better. And this is really the beginning of the, of the line of the Nyundo practice. And for me, my day begins with this. And I think this is very profound and has changed the way I, I, I lead my life. And I would recommend everybody also. I think there's no waiting for old age to take up this uh, practice. If you can start young, I think you will lead a much better, healthier life and also a more mindful and meaningful life. Lempo, thank you and the viewers for your energy and time today. Kadinchela. Thank you and Kadinchela.